0: I'm your host,
1: Elise Cortez, joining you live from the road this week in Portland, Oregon, when I'm here visiting dear friends and family. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping leaders to cultivate meaning in their their particular organizations and among their teams. As a management consultant and social scientist, I draw on the meeting work research I've been doing over the last 15 years, as well as my own experience consulting, speaking, and developing workforces across the globe. I'll get to my program in just a moment, but let me thank my, my sponsor, Recover Mattress. As an athlete and very active professional myself, I know the importance of good sleep. And Recover Mattress is a hybrid mattress designed specifically to improve sleep for muscle recovery for active lifestyles. You can learn more about the story of how this company was founded and the mattresses they make by visiting RecoverMattress.com. There's no E after the V. And if you do decide to buy a mattress, you can enjoy a 50% discount by using the code WOP50, short for Working On Purpose, 50% Off. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it, be recorded Podcast. We were on the air with Kimberly Davis, who is the founder of On Stage Leadership and recently published a book called Brave Leadership. We talked about her book and how the courage to be truly authentically ourselves can make all the difference in the results we get as a leader. Huge fan of her work. With us this week is Roland Hartle. He is a lifetime entrepreneur and founder of Abita, working on various patents and products. Today we're here to talk about his most recent invention, which is called the Interlude Folding Travel Chair. Roland, welcome to Working
2: on Purpose. Glad to be on.
1: This is so amazing to get to share your story with with listeners around the globe. I want to start this conversation out, Roland, by sharing something that a few of my listeners have heard heard me heard me narrate, and that's the story of a certain thing that happened, I guess, about thirty five years ago, and that's when you fired me. Ha! <laughs> okay. So I want to start with that. First, let me just share the story really quick, and then I want to hear what what that experience was like for you, and share what it what it what it meant to me. So, here's how it went down. I was I'd been working for you for for uh, I think 18 months, having a great time as your administrative assistant in your commercial real estate development company. Enjoyed every moment working with you. And one day on the way out to lunch, you threw the door open and, and over your shoulder you said, "You have to get out of here. You have to go see the world." Do something yourself, get an education, but before you go, hire your replacement. And the door shut. And I sat there the whole time you were gone, and I wondered, did he just fire me? So when you came back, and you merrily came back in and said, hey, Elise, and went back towards your office, I said, "Wait, wait, before you go, before you go, I have just one question for you. Did you just fire me? And you said, absolutely,
2: it would be a crime to keep you here. That's pretty close. Okay, so. Pretty close, but there's background to that story.
1: Okay, so tell the background, and then I want to tell you what that was for me.
2: The, The background is that I first ran into you three, four years before when you were working at your parents' restaurant, and you did a great job, and you were 15 or 16 at the time. And I said that if you ever come to Portland for a job, see me. And you showed up one day, and I put you to work. And uh, I I noticed that you were competent, you were a hard worker, and the only thing you were lacking were two things. One was a higher level education and a little wider range of horizon. Mm -hmm. So that's why I said, you've got to get out of here.
1: Well, first, I, you know that I always call you my life savior. You're the one who saved my life because, one, I needed to get out of that small town that I was in, and you were my ticket out. And I totally knew that and took you up on it. But you have to understand, Roland, that before you told me those things, I, it never occurred to me that I could go to college. It never occurred to me that I could go and visit other countries until you presence that for me.
2: Well, that's good.
1: It is good. And and the reason I wanted to open the, the the this episode with that story is the import, the impact that leaders and managers can have on their employees' lives. You made such a profound difference in my life. You saved my life and I've
2: told you that many times. So
1: let's start with that, shall we?
2: And I've told the story a few times myself. <laughs> I'm
1: so glad.
2: About your success. I'm
1: so glad. Well, another reason that we're here, I mean, obviously, I created this particular visit around having you on the program here and then visiting other family and friends, but the part of the reason I wanted to showcase you as my guest, Roland, is that you are going strong, you're you are you're a lifetime entrepreneur, you've done many, many, many deals and ventures over the years, and you're supposed to be in retirement, theoretically, and you should be pushing around a golf cart and maybe some clubs and having a good time, but what do you do when you're out inventing new things? So what I think is fun about that is you have a way of going through life that includes some strange angle on work. So why are you still out here slugging at it?
2: I'm not slugging.
1: <laughs>
2: I, I've never worked.
1: <laughs> You've I, played. I, You've I, only played, haven't
2: you? I, I, I want to tell a story. I was in a, in a birthday luncheon meeting, and everybody was talking about their careers, And somebody was saying how great he was and founded this large company and he's been there and and took it from a stock value of 33 down to three because the last two years were lousy. And they asked me what my career was and I said, well, I quit my job, my last job in 1966 and I've been unemployed ever since.
1: (laughs) Unemployable probably too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and that's, isn't that great, though? So, for listeners, a for little little bit of background for him. He, the man is 82 years old. I'm sitting here with him. He's, he's always been this way. Spry and running through life, enjoying the world and the planet, causing all kinds of mischief and making people happy along the way. That's how I describe you and think of you. Thank you. And that's how you, I think that's how you live and do this thing called work, too.
2: Well, I think I'm, a, at least my wife says, I'm the eternal optimist.
1: You <laughs> are the eternal optimist I've never met anyone more optimistic than you this is true
2: so uh, anyway I mean uh, you can always find a, a something good and something positive about anything and there there uh, if, an, if it's bad then there's an opportunity for something to change it so uh, anyway that's my attitude and and uh, the only problem I have is I'm running out of time.
1: I got that. Well, and to that end, you and I have known each other for 35 years, if you can possibly believe that. And I know that you and your wife spent a lot of time traveling the globe. And I'm wondering if that's, if any of those experiences contributed mm-hmm. to where this idea of, of the interlude folding travel chair came from.
2: Well, that was clearly definable. Uh, We were walking the streets in Barcelona three years ago. And all of a sudden, my right leg went numb. Mm. And I had to sit down every 50, 40, 50 yards. So, with that, I decided I needed to find a tool to let me sustain traveling and moving. So... uh, looking at was one on the market, uh, didn't quite meet my image of what I would like to have. And, uh, which was, it had to be light, it had to be, uh, easily carryable, uh, uh, manageable, and, and, uh, I wanted it to fit into a carry on airline bag or a backpack. And uh, I actually made one mistake in in my perception, which means I wanted it to be a chair and a cane, foldable cane, at the same time, which turned out was a mistake. And we lost about two years of design on that because we just couldn't implement it. But uh, with that, the first versions uh, were, were okay, but they were too heavy. And uh, we now cut it down to fit into an airline bag, weigh two and a half pounds, carry in excess of 250 pounds capacity, and uh, have two seating heights, adjustable. And uh, that's where we are at this point, we have two patents.
1: So what do, you, what, what do you want this product to be for people? What's your vision for what this product
2: could be for people? Well, the, the initial thought was to basically regain a certain strength when people get tired walking. That was the intent. And it also turned out that while you then regain that strength, you sit down. And you look around and enjoy what's around you. And uh, there were all kinds of inputs from people. For example, when I took it to my insurance agent to say I'm going to need liability insurance coverage for the product, and he said, you know, I'm a hiker. I would buy this thing because when I'm out in the woods or in the mountains, I typically don't find the right rock that fits me to sit down. <laughs> so that was one market that I hadn't even thought of. Right. Uh, one of my designers came to me the other day and said, you know, I went to these antique card shows and all these old timers, and they were even younger than you, were walking around and not one of them had a way to sit down. So it's a, it's a very flexible thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, another one of the designers took it to the beach and he said I used it as a chair and I used it as a a table in the sand Mm -hmm. but anyway the marker is wide it's just a matter of what you want to do bird watchers but the original emphasis was basically extend the range of motion and mobility for people like me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's still in my opinion the main one
1: so when you first told me about this product, I, and, I, and I thought about you and how I know you to walk through life, I got that. I can, Well, I could have imagined, I shouldn't say. I shouldn't say I got it because I didn't know. But I surmised the part of it was you saying to the universe, you're not going to stop me. I'm still going to travel. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to my little, little thing called my my, le- my leg going numb or my legs getting tired to stop me. And you have this this irrepressible spirit about you. And it seems to me that part of what you're doing is you're helping to enable other people to live life more fully and completely with this product.
2: Absolutely. I hope.
1: That's not a bad way to to, to uh, contribute to the planet, Roland.
2: Oh, well, or to myself.
1: <laughs> or to yourself, right? So one of the things that, that people ask me is, because they know that I work around purpose and meaning, you know, there are, people are desperate to find meaning for themselves, to discover their purpose. And one of the things that i say is if you start to look for the things in your life that you need to solve for yourself that you need to learn and know for yourself oftentimes that can be a great place so if you, you've created this chair for yourself now Correct. you're going to share it with the world that's that's a pretty good purpose to work from
2: well that's one of them what's the others well the other one's just having fun
1: <laughs> of course absolutely right it should be I always say work should be a playground. That's exactly what it should uh, be, and that is what I stand for. Roland. that's I want more people across the planet to have fun working like you do.
2: Good enough.
1: Do you do you know? Are you aware of these stats that the Gallup organization says that only fifteen one five percent of the global workforce is fully engaged in their work? And then you consider that we spend about forty uh, percent of our lives at work in some capacity. So if we're dragging ourselves through Monday through Friday, I think that's pretty pathetic and, and a crime and a way to waste a precious life. So what I'm up to is trying to help more people play at work like you do.
2: Absolutely. as you should, you know. And the, the, the only problem is there are only seven days in the week.
1: <laughs> I get that entirely. entirely get that. I know. If I can invent more days in the week and a few more hours in the day, I'd be happy too. Um, so back on your product here, a couple more questions about that. I I wanted to paint it for the, for our listeners as as they get the idea of what this could be. And one of the other things I love about the fact is that you've started from a place of just raw possibility, right? And you're just taking it from there. Um, I was thinking of other people that could use your product. And I know all, all the years when my daughter Gabby was younger and we would go to her soccer games or anything else and there was no place to sit. Correct. So all those parents that have the they, the need to be mobile following their children to some event, I see that as another place for your post. It, yeah. it is. It is. Who else?
2: Uh, one of the obviously the reasons for me was for me to to, to rest, but when you stand in airline check in lines, when you go to museums and that's really one of the stories how we arrived at the size of the seat is kind of funny. Tell me, tell us went to the, with one of the prototypes, I went to the art museum and there was a grandmother, daughter, granddaughter team. And they said, what's this? And I said, well, this is a prototype. And if I why I don't you try it? The daughter sat on the chair, the granddaughter sat on the chair and said, well, that's good, that will work. The, the the mother, the middle range of, of the three, said on the chest, said, I'd like it a little larger. And the grandmother said on the chair, said, the seat is way too small. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Perfect. A little um, input goes a long way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, let's talk a little bit about the process that you've been involved in to get this, this idea into a product into the market. So you, you said the idea started three years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, so
2: yes. lay it out for us. Well, it started three years ago, and I looked at products on the market, bought probably nine, ten different products that are out there. Uh, some of them lasted uh, three days, and some of them lasted two, three months, but they didn't quite fit my requirements of convenience. And For example... Um, when you travel, you typically carry one bag, airline bag mm-hmm. or whatever, and a backpack mm-hmm. or a purse, mm-hmm. and a camera. Yep. And then you have only you only have two hands. You have three articles, or well, maybe now I needed a chair. I had four. So the first version, which failed, was the one that had a a cane handle, so I could hang it on my arm. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we started with that, the first, uh, one of the first criteria was what shape is the handle? Whose hand should it fit, or should it fit a, a forearm with a muscle so it can hang on it? Can, does it the can questions. It, can it hang off a hotel checkout desk that you just hang it off there and it doesn't fall and clatter, clatter to the floor? Uh, when you put it in an overhead bin in an airplane, does it prohibit other bags to go in or not? Mm -hmm. Um, So with that, we did a prototype, and we basically machined it out of uh, some nylon and some tubing and uh, wanted to provide different height for different people. Uh, so that was the first project.
1: Then I... Okay,
2: hold on. Hold your thought, if you
1: would, please, Roland. I want to get this story full and paint it for our listeners, but I want to take a quick break, and then we'll cover the, the real details of that after the break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Roland Hartle of Hartle Development Company and Abida. He's the inventor of their interlude tra- folding travel chair. We're having this conversation from his office in Portland, Oregon, where I'm visiting treasured family and friends, present company included. Join us for more conversation about how we actually developed more prototypes of this chair. We'll be right back after the break.
3: Alice Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention.
0: Back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Roland Hartle. He is
1: the inventor of the Interlude Folding Travel Chair, and we've been talking a little bit about where the idea came from. Now, next, we want to showcase more of the overall process that it's taken for him to get where he is today, and I especially want to showcase this for the listeners who are perhaps contemplating creating something of their own and bringing it into the, the real world. So pay attention. Okay, so that first prototype, and then what?
2: Well, then I looked around for the expertise that I would need to get involved with me to to uh, implement the ideas. And luckily I found first one what I call jack of all trades who was recommended to me who has an incredibly wide range of skills, both practical and theoretical and mathematical and a mechanical engineer. And... Uh, the second one was I contacted an acquaintance, a patent attorney, and I said, I really need an industrial and design firm. And he recommended one to me, one of the top-notch ones. And when I met with the, one of the partners, he said, you cannot afford me or us, but I have three of our designers that just left us, and you should contact them. So I became uh, acquainted with Evolve Collaborative, three relatively young, certainly from my viewpoint, uh, design partners. And uh, I think I was their first, if not their first client, and we started the conceptual thinking of what would this project want to achieve, and they came up with some uh, basic ideas, themes, uh, potential images, and 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 uh, markets for different image building, traditional, sporty, um, really modern, contemporary, which we then use to focus on the, the final prototype. Um, that took us about a year and then we went out to price it and could not find the pricing level, this product is a combination of, of infused nylon uh, and aluminum tubing and some rubber pieces and uh, could not find it here and then I was looking for overseas clients and I had an old friend who was a supplier to Some of the larger importers uh, of uh, miscellaneous wares out of China. And I called him, and uh, he and I go back about 35 years, and uh, he said, interesting. Call me in 10 minutes, I'll be, I'll be back in my office. And, and I did. And he said, I'm leaving again for Asia tomorrow, but call this guy at this number, which I did. And I got connected with a firm called EBI, uh, which is an international design and supply firm. George Wang was the principal. Absolutely wonderful, big market. Um, big firm and uh, I said so and so says I should meet with him and we did and I took along my one of my other third designer so I have three design groups one is the Handsome original Evolve group and the strict mechanical other engineer that is more quality control and I took him along to the meeting walked in there and they showed us I said, we want to show you what we have in Brana. And he looked looked into the showroom, which had all kinds of things on shelves. And uh, he went to one piece and said, uh, huh, is this so and And they said, yeah. He said, I designed this. <laughs> Bingo, ice broken. <laughs> you know, just incredible. So we, from there on, we... we, we We basically evolved the product, they designed, we designed, we tested and uh, we're now to the point, as a matter of fact we have one more meeting this week, where we review the last fine-tuning of certain parts and then we're ready to roll out in August with the final first large order.
1: Oh my gosh, ladies and gentlemen, this is how it's done. Okay, so I heard a couple things there, Roland. I heard that, one, you don't do this alone. Just because you have a great idea doesn't mean you can pull it off by yourself. You had to go out there and source people who could help you bring this great idea to full fruition. Correct. Okay, that's important for listeners because a lot of us, present company, myself included, tend to go about things the hard way and try to go things alone. So that's the first lesson I heard out of that. Um, the other thing that I heard you say is that you leveraged other past relationships and connections
2: to be able to... Oh, absolutely. Okay. Beautiful. And and uh, more than one. I mean, three, four different relationships. And there's one element that's missing. Mm. How do you fund it?
1: Yes. what's well was, one of, Yeah, I was going to ask you about some of the vexing challenges that you've navigated through. So let's talk about... That's got to be one of them. Funding. Talk about that.
2: Well, there's two or three ways you can fund it. Number one, you can fund it through uh, Kickstarter campaigns or equivalent. Number two, you can uh, fund it with other with OPM, other people's money.
1: <laughs> OPM, okay.
2: And, and the third one is you fund it yourself. Mm-hmm. So uh, I decided to fund it myself because I uh, I didn't know where it was going to go. And uh, it uh, it eats up a lot of the can, especially when you go for a refined product and uh, you know, you have, you have patent attorneys, you have uh, cul de sacks that you hit with some uh, fat manufacturers that can't perform or say they can and that they can't and uh, etc. But uh, so uh, we're still probably going to do a Kickstarter campaign as a market test but that's a decision we make in three
1: weeks okay it's an interesting time to talk with you then okay so what other vexing challenges have you had to deal with and navigate through
2: patent application and trademark process okay uh, customs and import issues okay uh, trump tariffs okay <laughs> which are coming up not implemented yet um uh, and just time.
1: Yeah. It's amazing how much time it takes to jet to actually birth a product, isn't it?
2: Well, it is it is multifaceted. It takes a team. And uh, unless you are the perfect genius in the aspects of design, management, implementation and money, you can't do it by yourself.
1: Yeah, I totally get that. Really get that. Well, what have you most enjoyed along the way creating this idea and, and
2: engineering this product well oh, just having fun with it <laughs> I mean seriously and I I mean uh, I do other things at the same time because I have one or two other clients on on, on other of my my old activities both in engineering and and uh, and real estate and construction consulting from time to time but uh, Plus all the new ideas that pop up when you're out in the trade, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Endless.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's fun, too. I think, But but that, to me, is what makes you you. That's how you dance through life, as long as I've known
2: you. And I think dancing through life is the exact right term.
1: I do, too. I do, too. That's, yeah. That so describes you and is the epitome of
2: you. Thank you.
1: And wouldn't it be fun if more people across the planet did that?
2: Yeah, they get too uptight. Yeah. Is
1: that what it is? It, I, I think so. What is it? Because if you think about it, you know, you know that I, I stand for helping more people live like you do and play like you do, certainly in the workspace. So what do you think gets in the way of that for them?
2: I really think what gets in the way, they are thinking too narrowly. Yes. And they do not have developed their skill levels that are wide enough to see the whole spectrum of what's out there.
1: Hmm, that makes a lot of sense. So that's actionable.
2: And and I look back on, on my career, and I regret, for example, that I uh, didn't get a law degree or, I, or venturing. I always did it by acquiring myself, even after I had my, uh, my degrees. So, but it takes time, especially while you had to make, so to speak, stay alive. Right. While having fun, um, yeah, I and keep that in mind. I mean, I, I did go under, you know.
1: Right, I understand that. Yeah, so, and and that's it. So that's an important thing to showcase, right? When you play large, like you played, there are risks in that.
2: Absolutely. And
1: you are a person who is willing to accept those risks.
2: Reluctantly.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, I I want to showcase a bit more about your background, but let's take our last break here. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Roland Hartle of Hartle Development Company and also Abida. He is the inventor of the interlude folding travel chair. We've been talking a bit about the various processes that he's gone through to get the product to where it is today. After the break, we're going to hear a bit more about his earlier career and his entrepreneurial adventures. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Roland Hartle. He is the inventor of the Interlude Folding
1: Travel Chair. We've been talking about how much fun he's had developing that chair and bringing it to market, taking an idea and making it into something tangible and bringing it to people to enjoy. It's been amazing to get to hear about that. Next, what I want to do, Roland, if we can, is I want to take us back a little bit of time and and talk a bit about your earlier career before you did this, because you have had so much fun as an entrepreneur. You you and I were talking earlier, and you said part of the reason that you are an entrepreneur is because you get bored every five years. So... (laughs) So, when I think about you, how life began for you, I mean, you were born in Czechoslovakia before World War II when you escaped ethnic cleansing of the German minority and deportation to a concentration camp, which is extraordinary in and of itself. You came to the United States on a Fulbright scholarship at age 20, educated as a civil engineer. And I met you when you were running your commercial real estate development company, which is where I worked for you. So, of all the adventures you've had professionally, which ones are you most proud of?
2: Uh, one... Is, uh, is the the design of the Fremont Bridge.
1: Oh, yes. Please tell that story. So we're in Portland, Oregon. The Fremont Bridge is, is a big deal. There are four or five bridges?
2: Uh, more, a few more. Okay, But, but in, in 1963, I put on a bridge exhibit of European bridges because uh, one of the bridges at that time that the highway department put up was just... 1920s state of the art instead of 1960s, and I put on a bridge, European bridge exhibit at uh, Reed College, and uh, when the Fremont Bridge came up for design, uh, one or two members of the Arts Commission remembered the bridge exhibit and called me and said, we'd like you to look at the designs that have been submitted so far, there were six and uh, why don't you come in and pick up the schemes? And they asked my opinion, and I said, well, if you wanted to have a bridge designed to the technology of the 1920s, pick any of them.
1: (laughs) You'll be fine, yeah.
2: And they said, well, uh, what could you do? And I said, well, I could take the data and the criteria and come up with a schematic design that you might like. I was working for an engineering firm at the time with a very despotic owner and boss. And I said this is what I want to do and he said okay. So I did some calculations for about a week and uh, then through a sketch and had it drawn up by one of our uh, firm's architectural members and presented it to the Arts Commission. And there were two other designs submitted after that, and they decided to pick my schematic, which was, as a matter of fact, became then implemented uh, exactly to the proportions done by another engineering firm, because the engineering firm which I worked was too small, plus, uh, however, his his claim quote, whatever fame there be, end of mm. quote, since then. But well, that's all right. Mm. No problem. So anyway, that's um, I, I counted that as a major achievement. Uh, Just a sec, before you go on to the next one.
1: What I love about that, one, the, the Fremont Bridge is, is a big deal in Portland, and certainly when you think about what can we do in a life, what, what, what makes for our life, to be able to give that as a legacy is incredible. It's in one become
2: one. a symbol of the city.
1: Yes, it has.
2: All right. Which is which is very nice. I mean, it's it's withstood those challenges. There are one or two newer and better designs of the of the newer bridges, or at least one of them, and and that's great, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one it stands out.
1: Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. So okay, so that's one that you're proud of. What else are you proud of when you think about that long history of things you've spent toiling at and enjoying? Well.
2: Uh, We started a construction company in 1971 after I sold the engineering firm. And uh, in 1975, one of my employees said, you know, J.R. Simplett Company is going to build a French fry plant in Oregon and they've never done a project in Oregon. They don't know what they're getting into. I want to go over and sell us to them. I said, okay. So they invited us to, to a submittal based on one sheet of drawing for one of the early receiving buildings. We submitted it and they called it and said to you, the low proposer, come on over. We want to sign contract. Long story short, they handed us the contract, and I looked at the contract and I said, uh, I'm ready to sign the contract. But if I were you, I wouldn't sign that contract. <laughs> Why not? And they said, w- what do you mean? I said, well, I know how you do work. I said, your contract is a license to steal for me. And I don't think you should do that. Oh, what a great way to say it. And I said, I- I've looked at how you do work. And you do a base contract, which is a half a million dollars. was close to it. And then you change order it, and this is a $35 million project. No control. What do you propose? Well, long story short, we made a proposal then, which outlined how we would do it, how we would competitively bid the subsections and subpieces. And uh, then we had a deadline of uh, growing season, and the key was to design and build the first McDonald's French fry plant in 14 months. Wow. And uh, which, when two competitors of Simpler try that, and then following two years, it took them three years to do the same. But it was a weekly stand-up design meeting with everybody flying into the site, stand-up sessions for four to five hours, lunch standing up, and then everybody dispersed. I mean, it was an incredible achievement to do it. And, Different engineers, different engineering firms. Not a single one. Mechanical, electrical, structural. Fights with the unions and for its unions, etc. So that was an achievement.
1: Absolutely. And, and then we handed. And just a sec. One more thing on that one. For all of those you, all of those you across the globe who love McDonald's French fries, you can also thank Roland Harwell for helping to make
2: that happen. <laughs> and and, we also did for community projects in the region. Wow. That, uh, that's another funny story, but that's another... Well, we project. have time, go for it. We have time for it. Well, typically when you do construction projects in the community, large ones, the local paper says, now you need to run an ad. And uh, yeah. as a contract, you run a full-page ad and your subs are on ads. And uh, the then-vice-president of Simplet said, we're going to do this different." I said, what, give me the idea? And I said, great idea. So I said, we identify community projects that the community needs, childcare center, uh, recreation equipment for the senior center, a park remodel, and a playground. And I said, we're gonna raise the money from our subs, from our contractors. You're gonna give $5,000, I am gonna give $5,000. And then we're going to assess our contractors. If somebody has a $2,000 purchase order, we ask them for a buck. And we raised almost $50,000, by the way, from ourselves. And then we walked into the newspaper and we said, Jerry, we want to do this like you proposed, but you're going to run the ads for nothing. Nice. Because we're going to spend this money on these four community projects,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and he sat back, and all he said was, "You sons of bitches!"
1: <laughs> it's brilliant. It's so clever.
2: It was wonderful. So we ended up building the only childcare center in Hermiston, and, uh, and 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 the other things, and it's it was it was wonderful. <laughs>
1: That is stunning, Roland. Uh,
2: Talk the, about
1: making a difference. Uh,
2: exactly, and it was fun. And the other thing is, at the end of the job, because of the contract I negotiated, we handed our client back a check for $150,000 for job underrun. Wow. You know, because of the way we uh, administered the job that was part of the contract.
1: Mm, and that's amazing. Who, when does that ever happen today?
2: It does happen. It. Does it? Oh yes. Okay. Oh yes. You know, we did a similar thing with the Red Cross building. Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. Are there any other things in that that background, that rolodex of experiences of yours that you're particularly proud of?
2: I made Emmanuel Hospital sell three acres of land after they had ne- vowed to never sell a piece of land to anybody. But I con- I convinced them with their own logic. And this was interesting, because uh, American Red Cross Trail trapper is a blood supplier for what that time was for seventy two hospitals in the Northwest, and we needed a new site. And uh, I was on the board. and uh, the site we picked was next to the Emmanuel Hospital. and this was a, was a large project. And uh, Emmanuel didn't want to sell. And I said, why not? And they said, well, because we don't know if you're going to be around, you might go broke. Mm -hmm. And I said, wouldn't that be wonderful for you? All of a sudden you would own us and you'd control the blood supply as a manual hospital for 72 other hospitals? They said, oh, we'll sell. (laughs) It's
1: a matter of giving them a different perspective on this. Exactly. Opening the horizons. You talked earlier about how people can be a bit narrow. You just—that's a great example of completely blowing that wide open.
2: Yeah, and it worked, and it was—it was—it was fun to do, negotiate with them, including their their attorneys and our attorneys, and uh, and then uh, the labor unions, and you know, was uh, the financing was tricky, uh, all of that stuff. And what was the net result of that project? It's a blood laboratory over at Emanuel Campus, which has been in operation since 1987, and still is, and uh, it's still operating.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not too shabby. Uh, Not too shabby. Okay, uh, so a couple more things, a couple more, I, I probably have two more questions for you, but before I do that, I want to make sure if there's anything else in there that, you, that stands out as something you're really proud of that you want to share. Oh, all this is lies. All oh, this is lies. Perfect. Yeah, sorry <laughs> listeners, this is all just a big joke. Just kidding! <laughs> what, what other What
2: other things, what What do you mean?
1: Well, so I wasn't sure if there was any, any other experiences that you wanted to share, because there's,
2: there's two other questions I
1: want to ask you before we, we go off air in just a few minutes.
2: Well, you know, when you have 60 years of professional life, there's a lot of stuff.
1: I know, I know. It's unfortunate so, this is just a less than an hour show.
2: Yeah, well, no, it's fun.
1: Okay, so I'm going to ask you this next question. Um, and I... I I didn't give you any chance to think about this. So I want to, if you could share, what do you think makes for living a great life?
2: Uh, That's a good question. Great life means to me that you, number one, treat people the way you'd like to be treated uh, and encourage them to grow and to develop to their best abilities. If you see them, you support it, and uh, uh, sometimes they don't see it, and uh, couple it with education, and keep in mind that when you are 20 today, you're going to be around for another, most likely 60 to 70 years, you're going to change occupation and and uh, at least three to four times over that period. So you need to stay flexible and widen your capabilities and broaden and deepen your capabilities all along. But uh, enjoy the challenges.
1: So I completely agree with that. So if I think for you, where others may have been worn down by the challenges that you got presented with, for you, I think it just heightened the fun. It, it does. It does. So that goes back to mindset. So the thing about mindset is it can be learned. You're not just stuck with whatever you've got. It can be learned. You can learn to, to embrace that kind of a mindset.
2: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so if I had known 60 years ago, I'd know now it would be a lot more successful.
1: I, I, I totally understand that. Trust me. Um, and then just quickly on leadership, um, you clearly have learned a lot about leading people. And I think it is a lot to do with just what you said about how you treat people. And it was for me working for you. You did grow me. You made me a lot of who I am because of your counsel. Can you say a little bit about your, your perspective on your approach to leadership?
2: Well, I, I think, I think there, there are various elements. Number one is you have to trust the people you work with. And, 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 and I'm, I mean, you have to express that trust. And one of my axioms has always been the people that work for me or with me on a team will not do the things the way I would like to do them. They'll do them better. Oh, <sighs> that's so great. And they do; they will if you trust them.
1: Mm, that's beautiful.
2: And, and I think really that's the leadership that you should have. And uh, uh, when somebody come up on your team of your employment comes to you and says, yeah, I'd like to do this, I think you should say, how do you want to do it and how can I help you with it?
1: That sounds fantastic to me. You know? Okay. So we're getting close to running out of time. So I always like to give my guest, if you will, the, the last word. So you know, the show is about helping people across the globe more meaningfully and productively connect with their work in a way that gives them a, a sense of purpose about th- their work. What would you like to leave the listeners with today?
2: Think of helping other people achieve their dreams. I don't have to be big. Yeah. Just a nudge here, an encouragement there.
1: That is beautiful. That is certainly what this show is, is about is standing from a place of encouraging and shouting from the rooftops for people to go for their dreams for sure. Yeah. So I completely agree with that, and it's a beautiful way to finish, Roland. Thank you so much for joining me on Working on Purpose. It's been amazing to have you here.
2: My pleasure. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
1: If listeners want to find you, how can they, how can they reach you?
2: Well, they can reach me by email, Roland H., 1936 at com or at Roland at com. Excellent.
1: Wonderful. Join us next week when we talk with Debbie Mazerick. She will be talking about what makes for great salespeople. And if you don't think you're in sales in some capacity, think again. See you there. Remember that work is at least 40% of our life, so let's work on purpose.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.